0: Welcome to another episode of the Unleash Business Podcast, where we interview business people to discuss their journey and unpack the lessons they learn along the way. I'm Jake Dawson, along with my co-host Trent Chapman.
1: We got Nige Ferguson this week.
0: Yeah, yeah. Nige um, really enjoyed hearing his, his business journey.
1: Yeah, there's a whole heap of story to unpack there. For those who aren't familiar, Nige is a very recent CEO of Edstein's Creative Stone. Um, there was a, a massive story in the background as to how we got into that and um, some various moves he made through his life and and also how we got out of that because we were lucky enough to interview him just after his exit.
0: Yeah, and, and just the yeah, the along the way, the scale, how how he developed as, you know, himself and, and the business, um, along the way of that massive growth trajectory that they had.
1: Yeah, and efficiencies in, in manufacturing I think was a big thing and also Sort of being aware, one eye on the technology that's coming, one eye on what's happening on the ground as well. So, all right, let's jump into the podcast with knowledge. This so,
2: uh, Tari, born and bred boy, went to Chatham Primary, went to Chatham High School, um, didn't like school, wasn't You my don't
1: th- have to name the school if it's too embarrassing. <laughs> no, 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 it's all good. Got, still got pretty good connections there.
2: Um, <laughs> didn't school wasn't my thing i love woodwork science those sort of things hated hated history english all of that sort of stuff
1: and but, teachers but and people managed, telling you what to do yeah
2: many managed, managed to get through that side of it but um in year 11 and 12 decided that i was going to do it didn't really know where that was going to take me from a direction from a career perspective um and then in year 12 uh, was away sailing at uh, combined high schools in Newcastle, and we got second in the state there, and then came back after a fairly long week of partying every night, and was quite crook thinking I'd come home with alcoholic poisoning, which wasn't the case. Uh, and it turned out three weeks later I had abscess appendix and nearly died. So uh, that turned into a pretty horrendous thing leading into the trial HSC and stuff like that, and. All the teachers were saying, you're done, you'll have to come back and repeat. And I'm wow. like, yeah, no, nah, that's not <laughs> happening. <laughs> oh, sure. I, I want to get this over and done with. So um, it really changed my life. I knuckled down and studied, which I'd never done before, and did all these things to prove all the teachers wrong. And
0: Nothing like a near-death experience. Yeah, <laughs> so it really transformed. Or
1: someone it. telling you can't do what you you yeah, know that you, you can, should do yeah <laughs> yeah so yeah did did
2: woodwork and did made a, a reproduction chair which I got in the top three percent of the state for and wow. things like that where I was passionate and I did really well but probably exceeded my expectations in the HSC got an ATAR got accepted into uni and um, I finished school probably I don't know middle of November or something like that Went to Sydney because I had a girlfriend in Sydney at the time. Came back and started work at Steve's in, the, um, in their joinery shop. Mm. So I was just doing a bit of um, hinging doors and making cabinets and stuff. And I'd, I'd done my work experience there and knew the production manager through sailing, which I was one of my passions. And they um, offered me apprenticeship after Christmas. And I'd sort of went, go to uni, that's more like school, or do I do something that I'm passionate about and I took the apprenticeship and loved it like it was uh, it was a really good trade to get into and enjoyed working with my hands and loved the marine side of things as well
1: yeah perfect mm. so a bit of background in case people don't know Steve asked. it was boat building company boat building company and so in Tari. you were involved with the fit out section of that
2: so I did everything so um, I was there for nearly 10 years in in my time um as a third-year apprentice, I was actually a team leader, so I actually had tradies working under me as a third-year. <laughs>
1: wow. <laughs>
2: um, Flex. <laughs> <laughs> got um, Apprentice of the Year in uh, Hunter and Apprentice of the Year in New South Wales and was the first apprentice in... Ties Hill TAFE in ship and boat building, get a distinction on my trade certificate.
1: So, geez, well done. I worked for my parents, I still couldn't get apprentices. <laughs> <laughs> that was Tristan. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I he think, wasn't even an apprentice yet. <laughs>
2: I think the key is you got to do something that you're passionate about. And yeah. I loved it. You know, I loved, I had the advantage over a lot of the apprentices in the year that most of them were year 10, where I'd gone to year 12, understood calculus and different yeah. things from a maths perspective because the, ship and boat building trade a lot of that's engineering based so mm. it was one of those things that i excelled at i enjoyed working with my hands my brain and all of those sort of things and then like as time went on lots of opportunities came up at Stever. Um my my first trip overseas was to papua new guinea working on boats which was absolutely mind-blowing three weeks up there in yeah, <laughs> not somewhere I'd go back to in a hurry. But yeah, <laughs> really cool to go there. They yeah, had it a was. a few clients that work there actually. Yeah, and we were in Medang, which is right up on the top, so absolutely beautiful. Yeah. They were filming a movie and wow. stuff where we stayed, so that was really cool. And then I ran a project for the Australian Department of Defence for two and a half years uh, for the SAS, and we designed with another company in Sydney... Um, nine-metre rigid inflatable boats where the SAS could go and do fast attack out onto um, the oil rigs off Western Australia and different places. So that was really cool because I got to work here. I got to work in Sydney. I was working with the Department of Defence, doing QA, Lloyd's Register Shipping, and it really exposed me to a lot of different things.
1: And this was part of Stever Yep. Yep.
2: So that was probably about 93 or something like that I did that. Oh, yeah, that was the year I was born. (laughs) (laughs) We're close in age.
1: (laughs) You would have been about 14. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Still a first year.
2: Yeah. And um, once that sort of project finished, I got into working with the Naval Architecture Group, which did the design for the boats and working with the maritime and different things. So I started my CAD journey, like Mm -hmm. using AutoCAD and different sorts of things like that, um, which was really interesting. I really found that, something that I enjoyed.
1: And that tech would have been pretty groundbreaking at that stage. It was, yeah. yeah, It still is really in production. mm. There's still a lot of production that happens without it, yeah.
2: Yep, yep. So that was really cool and I guess at that stage I'd started to get a few job offers from different things. Uh, I got a job offer, did a a boat repair in Bundaberg. Um, Some fishermen, a fishing group had three boats that we built at um, Bundaberg and one night the one of the boats was coming in on autopilot and they slept through the auto- autopilot and put it on Bagara Beach on the rocks. <laughs> so it ended up with three holes in it as big as me. Too much rum. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing was I think it was the money that was driving them uh, because they only had a three-week season and they were making yeah, like do. 50 grand a day or something yeah. catching spanner crabs and shipping them. So they sort of offered me a job managing a marina and then I got offered a job with the guys that had the Department of Defence job and mm. Sydney's not me, like I've yeah. never done that, never been into that sort of place. And then um, the opportunity with Ed Steens came up. So Ross Meldrum um, I'd done work with on a boat years previous, um, did a big refit over four months. Mm. He bought Ed Steens in probably about, october or september october 95 and um we'd always said that we'd like to work together we got on really well and we had very different skill sets ross has you know done lots and lots of different things sales perspective and and marketing and those sort of things i had the practical skills and he bought it gave me the opportunity to go in as a 10 percent shareholder um jumped in (laughs) six months in it was I thought the worst mistake of my life, <laughs> I hated it, it was horrible, the people were horrible, the business was old-fashioned, Ross had some issues and he had to leave. So Brownie, yeah. Brownie Graham Brown and I, um, Cole Rob helped us out as well. Uh, and that, that's where one of the good things about living in a small town, um, there's you resources to that you can lean on. on. Yeah. And I can remember Brownie had his offices up on, um, up on the main street uh, we're Simon and Krellen, and that yep. is And went in there one day and said mate I'm out I, I, <laughs> I just <laughs> I cannot know. do this <laughs> how, anymore How far was this in? Six months <laughs> Six months in yep. I was going to work at five o'clock Getting home at ten Going back to work Do it all over again Six days a week And do, like, I can vividly remember We got this job for McDonald's um, Somewhere in Sydney But yep. the joiner who was doing the work Was from Coffs Harbour he turned up or he rang and said, look, I've hired a truck. I'm coming to pick up. We're making all these granite tables. You know how yeah, yeah. they have all the tables and yep. stuff. We're making all these granite tables. And, like, at that stage, Ed Steens was an old-fashioned stone masonry business with no systems, no process. You just turned up to work and did your work and went home. Cut the and table. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. <laughs> cut out whatever we decided to cut out. Yeah. You know? So this guy rang... And the guy who was running the floor said, "Yeah, come come and yeah, we'll be right. Come this afternoon." So he hires this truck. He turns up. We haven't even got half of them made. (laughs) It's like, oh shit, what are we going to do here? So he turns around, drives back to Coff's Harbour. This happens twice. I'm (laughs) like, wow, this is ridiculous. Like we just can't keep doing things like this. And I guess at that stage, we just had adapted or adopted everything that
1: that business was doing at that time. Was this mid-90s, you said? Something? Yeah, so this is mid,
2: yeah. mid probably 96 this is getting into. And we, you know, we didn't know much about stonemasonry and any of those sort of things, but I think Ross had some time away from the business and come back and he'd been travelling around Australia looking at things and he says, you know what we're trying to do wrong here? We're trying to do what they do. We need to do what we do. And that was one of the – that was the turning point when we went, let's scrap everything that happens and let's start again with a fresh piece of
1: paper. And so Um, what was Ross's background?
2: So Ross at one stage had uh, I think 12 car yards up and down the east coast. Yeah. Um, Sales and marketing. Sales and marketing was his thing. System, you know, like being able to replicate things. Um, Duplicates. Where I could – get the practical thing we make say we want to yeah. make this yeah. or we want to do that and you know we we, cla- do we do this efficiently we clashed heaps of times but the fact was i was probably one of the few people that could clash with ross
1: and challenge him and he
2: would and go. make
0: it a successful outcome yeah, yeah. and, and
1: it, i think that's probably an important point to make yeah is that clashing is not a bad thing nah. it's really important to have someone the opposite make of you, you, you question yeah. yourself, yep. at least, especially if you're the king of the castle business owner. Mm. Um, you need someone to say, are you sure this is right? Yep. And and make you literally question it because otherwise you just you could potentially just make bad decision after bad decision. Yep.
2: You just keep marching along. Mm. And, you know, like we, um, we made the decision that we would – the owners before us had – the business had been through a couple of owners in very quick succession – And the owners before us were from Sydney. So they were doing all this work in Sydney and the logistics of the company and the structure of the company didn't suit doing that. And so we went Newcastle's an hour and a half, two hours away. We don't have the traffic issues, we don't have all of those things. And we started exploring some of the kitchen business and the potential to do that. And so when we bought the business in '95, it was turning over about 600 grand a year. It had I think twelve employees and then by probably two thousand and two, two thousand and three, we'd turn over six million. We had like thirty five employees. We were wow. the big mover and shaker in Newcastle. We started doing monumental in Newcastle and expanding that part of the
0: business and So was that part of that, you know, do what you do but do it well?
1: Yep. So one, one part of the, th- of the plan, though?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah. So one of the things that Ross was about was we want to tell our story. So mm. we made these books up about, you know, if you're a kitchen company, here's step one. If you want to sell a stone benchtop, um, you know, these are the colours. This is the things that you should be asking the client. These are the edge profiles. This is how we're going to make it. This is the, the step one is you get the quote
0: from us and then you accept the quote. And So we you were educating your clients on how to shop with you,
1: basically. Yep. And how to sell your product to yep. their clients. Yep.
0: And, and one
2: of the things that we discovered really quickly was, you know, the people that were coming to us knew nothing. It's You know, back in yeah, those yeah. days, the internet didn't exist. Yeah, yeah you couldn't the, the, just Google you, you couldn't, what is internet. You know, like it's different. <laughs> this world today, the the buyer is quite often more educated than the seller. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, they've done their
1: research. Whether it's in the right yeah. context or not. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, wrong or indifferent. They, yeah. In, yeah. Quotations, you know everything. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, yeah, that was going on. But in the, in the background of that as well, um, in 1990, probably 97, um, Ross and I, or Ross came up with the idea that the area needed a crematorium because the closest crematorium was Port Macquarie or Beresfield in Newcastle. Oh, yeah. So um, the initial things were that the council at that time – Tarry Greater Tarry City Council were looking to build a crematorium themselves but councils don't have vision and mm. you know skills and those sort of things so they went out, they gave us a lot of um, background data on population growth and death rates and all of the different things. They had um, the Red Bank Cemetery and a lot of land around that particular area that they owned and um, we did all the feasibility study and did the design to build the crematorium there and had, because of the discussions, the way they'd evolved, probably hadn't really discussed it outwardly, but we assumed that there was a JV going to happen on the whole scenario that we would walk in and go, here it is, we'll put in this, you put in that, and here's the outcome. We went to do that. We went, here you go, here's all the work. And they went, awesome, now we'll put it out to public tender and (laughs) and (laughs) we'll see who comes to the fore. And we went, yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, so we madly regrouped and went back and went, This there's a business case to make this work. And so we started looking for sites and, you know, the LEP and all of the constraints around zoning and all those sort of things were issues to find a site. And one of Ross's sons, Andrew, said jokingly one night, um, you should turn this into the crematorium because their house – which is where the crematorium <laughs> is, is now, yeah. was big cathedral ceiling building with, you know, sandstop bricks and a beautifully landscaped area. And um, Ro- I think Ross recanted something along the lines of, don't be stupid. And then over the next week or two went, you know what, that's a pretty <laughs> bloody good idea. The
1: old added, if it's stupid and it works, it's not stupid. Yeah.
2: So we madly um, went about, Putting together a business case to make it work, and got some finance from the NAB, and um, went ahead and lodged a DA. But what that actually did was force the council's hand that they had to lodge a DA. So the the day or the week that we lodged the DA, the council lodged their own DA for mm-hmm. a crematorium, and um, Terry Hutchison also launched a cremator. Or Bewley Road out towards Tononi. so all of a sudden this area had nothing, and then there was three, DA, <laughs> three the DA's, three <laughs> in there, and um, the council couldn't do it. Like they ha- didn't have any idea Be- what they were Be- going to Be- do yeah, or yeah. what was going to happen. They weren't nimble enough. Terry couldn't do it because the zoning no didn't w- cash on the line. Yeah, so um, we got the DA, and we were up and running in three months. Holy. From start wow. to finish. I suppose you didn't have to construct a building, did? So you? we basically yeah, just yeah. had to find a house to we, move to. We took the punt that we were going to get it. We ordered the cremator before when we put the da in. We did all of the things. There may have been a few things happening before some of the approvals, but, yeah. hey, you know, that's you, entrepreneurship. You've got, sometimes you got to back yeah. yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, yeah, we got that up and running. And at that stage, we ran the crematorium. It didn't have offices or anything out there. We actually ran it out of Edstein's in the early days for the first probably two years. And um, we got through to, I don't know, probably late 2000, early 2001, and Ross... Didn't, wasn't really enjoying the whole Ed Steen's experience. Um, lots of people and lots of moving mm. parts and not enough control f- to suit his personality.
0: Well, it's a very rapid five-year expansion. Yeah, so that,
2: that was all happening and um, he basically said, one day I walked into his office and he said, come and sit here and he put me in his chair <laughs> and he went and sat on the <laughs> other side of the desk and so said, right, this is yours, I'm vendor financing you. <laughs> you're in, this is your baby, you pay me off over the next five years Um, and the price that I paid was a price that was extracted even though I own 10% of the business, it was actually split down the middle and And he said you only have to pay half and this is the deal. So he went and ran the crematorium from that point on actually built office and set up out there and... Ran that full time and it was during that stage, that that was 2001, we actually decided that the NAB was making too much out Mm. of the whole thing and we weren't making anything. Mm. So we actually put together an idea to go and float the business with local business people. Mm. Um, So we actually went out and got together groups of people. The first group we pitched to were the Mayo Group. So there was lots of business people involved in the Mayo Private Equity Mm. Uh, that was a dismal failure. They they didn't get it. They couldn't see the, the idea behind it. So we had two or three goes at it, and I think we ended up with about, we ended up with 22 shares and probably 14 shareholders. So some people came in, and it was, again, a very diverse mix of people that, that came on board. But immediately we did that, the business became profitable because we weren't paying all the money to the bank. Yeah. Mm. And yeah, it right. just transferred what we did. And, again, everything we did with the crematorium, Manning Great Lakes Memorial Gardens, was about presentation, like we want to set the standard. Like Ross did so much research in all of the places around to do that and then I did the background things on how we we're going to build it and that's where but our But it would like a
0: strange thing to do research on, wouldn't it?
2: yeah yeah (laughs) but but not people (laughs) (laughs) but not that different normal thing to research (laughs) not that different when we were selling headstones and monuments and stuff so you know it It
0: made sense to go in that direction yeah yeah definitely yep
2: so yeah there was a lot of stuff so 2001 i took over edstein's fully um stepped into the chair and yeah, it was a crazy ride from that point on. Like, started traveling around the world, like researching technology. Bought the first CNC fully automated saw in Australia that ran off CAD CAM. Um, we had the first CNC router machine in Australia from France, and just went and looked at what everyone was doing around
1: the world, and kept capturing the
0: it, bringing the best of it.
1: Yeah, yep. I've um I've spent a bit of time in Edson's factory, right, and. Then first time i went in there was probably two or three years ago and i walked in and i was like this place exists in Taree, yeah like with the stuff that was going on in there even in 2020 or 2018 19 whatever it was it's space age i (laughs) was looking at it and i was like i've read about you guys in the paper about your solar setups and stuff and your water recycling but like you walk in there and the the production facility was incredible it was yep. crazy to see and and the every process though from from signing to getting out the back i just thought this is the sort of stuff that we need to be doing in our business like we need to have these so that you can't walk past the front unless you've done this and you've done this and you've got this on and yeah you've Past all these processes, I guess, and I was on the editorial quote. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was looking at it, I was like, How do I get involved here? <laughs> it's and a high risk business, so you've got to have those systems and processes in place. Yeah, definitely. But even yeah. in 2018 and stuff, right? This was before the high risk business yeah. was seen as a high risk business. And you guys water cutting your air fed masks and respirators to enter site, like, yep a lot of that started early on
2: like when we when we first bought Edstein's it was a dust bowl like nothing was done wet so we we got them to change processes in 96 like changed all of the things that we could back then but you know like there's the, the technology's there you've just got to go find it and work out how it's going to adapt
0: it's it's one of those things that can have diminishing returns as well so how did you decide what was a good thing to invest in technology wise and what yeah, maybe, maybe not so much.
2: Um, I think the big thing was trying to reduce the amount of people, but that never happened. Mm. Like we would, get yeah. more, we would get more machinery and then put more stuff out. and yeah. You know, part of the challenge, there was a big period in the early 2000s where the monumental part of the business, we were manufacturing all of the headstones and, you know, grave componentry in that in-house. And there was a movement in that early period where people started buying from China. And most of them were buying from wholesalers in Australia and I'm going, why are we going to do that? Um, Why don't we go and cut out the middleman and start importing directly ourselves? So, you know, even in those early days, I was getting an email from China two or three a day from all of these blokes. You know, we've got these monuments, we've got this, we want to sell you this, and I'd just chuck them in the trash bin and wouldn't worry about it. And one day I went, right, I'm going to actually engage with these people and do some costing because the problem was our raw product that we were using in blocks of granite and stuff was diminishing because the guys in Australia had decided they're not going to manufacture in Australia anymore. They were going to buy stuff in. And so it's like, how how are we going to beat this scenario? And we were probably a couple of years behind getting into the Chinese and imported product for that Mm -hmm. side of the business. But – we didn't need to jump in. We were still manufacturing stuff and we were still cost-effective in what was going on and had the control, Mm. but we wanted to do the research. So I went to China, engaged with these guys, came back, did an order, did all the AutoCAD plans, sent them to China, went back to China again when it was all manufactured before it got loaded into the container and then got it out. And it probably took two or three of those, which was over maybe. We probably only bought one or two containers in the first year. But after maybe three years we were ordering container every month yeah and bringing in product from there and you know the cost cost base was much lower and i think that's you know that whole scenario of return on investment we could have gone and bought the machinery and done all of those things to continue to manufacture in australia but it wasn't viable yeah you know we were buying the finished product out of china for what we could buy the raw product in australia yeah so it just there was no economic and you know like that's the the best thing i learned out of working with ross the whole time we worked together and we still are good friends and still talk a lot about business ideas and different things um is his analysis of the profit and loss and the balance sheet and you know margins like not necessarily dollars but the percentage in the margin and actually looking at where your gross overhead is and you know what do we need to get back out of this part of it and What's
1: the return on investment? Because it, it could look ridiculous. Like, right, if you have like a, a business of 20 million turnover and you looked at a dollar figure, you'd be like, who, who needs that? Let's try and spread it out. But it, when you're looking at it, at it as a percentage, because like we would know and any of the listeners would know if they've seen a P&L, the bottom line compared to the bank account is very different. <laughs> right? The bottom line you think, gee whiz, we got some cash. And then you check the bank you go, oh, where is it? Yep. So it disappears to somewhere yep. and you need to find that percentage to know what it, what you need to operate at to be viable long-term. Yep. Debt is in stock. Yeah. Well, and debt is yeah. in stock, they cost you. Yep. So you don't want to be
2: the bank for someone else no. and you <laughs> don't want all of your profit sitting in stock in the warehouse. I,
1: I have a supplier in our business that has a 60-day term And it's just crazy. I I pay them at 30, but you're looking, you're like, if I held that cash for 60 days, and every customer that you have done that, they must have big margins. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think they're like a third generation business, but I think the thing, the issue with generational businesses is it's easy to get lazy like that. Yeah. You you probably don't need that cash in the bank right now, but one day you're probably going to want to sell it. And in that event, you're going to wish you had 30-day terms because the purchase Mm. is going to look very badly on a 60-day term with every supplier that you have. Yep. But you've got to leverage that in your business.
2: Like buying from overseas, um, you know, initially when we started dealing with China, we were doing letters of credit and, you know, all sorts of forward exchange contracts and all those sort of things. And, again, the bank was the one that was making all the money out of it. and And we just ended up going, you know what? Let's just pay spot rate on the day. We'll just transfer straight out of our account, do the transaction, and live with the variance in the because yeah. the because the product was so cheap in comparison to us making it. Mm. All of the time that we were spending trying to do those things, it was false economy. Yeah, yeah. And it's we just and we ended anyway. up saying to them, righto, we're not going to pay up front anymore. We're going to pay on bill of lading, which means it's on the ship. And it's fourteen days away. Back in the good old days, yeah. not like three months like yeah, it is yeah, now yeah. <laughs> in this world. Um, so yeah, the good old days two years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, even freight. Three you know, bucks. like freight from China for a twenty-foot container with I don't know twenty-three ton of stone in it was mm. eight hundred US dollars. Wow. It's now about six and
0: a half thousand. Yeah, that's that's it's
2: just insane. Crazy. Yeah, and Apex. and it's like you keep getting bumped. Um, you know because stone containers are heavy the shipping companies look at right what's the balance how's this going to work on our fuel and all different things and you know where it'd be direct ship from um shanghai to sydney they now bump you off in singapore or somewhere like that and go all right we've Extra got this and, and people were paying exorbitant amounts of over over freight as well you know there'd be an a class one paying twelve thousand dollars a container and they would get a guarantee, but. You know, it'd then get to Sydney and it'd be sitting on the on the boat outside and then it'd be sitting on the dock yeah, and...
0: Clear by custom.
1: Yeah. <laughs> crazy. Absolute mess. So we are mid-2000... Yeah, early 2000s. So
2: 2000, yeah, 2000s, yes. so a lot of stuff going on. So I actually set up a different company to do the importing. So I actually went to China, did all of that and set, started a company called Creative Stone Enterprises and... I was wholesaling to people in Western Australia, um, Tumut, Sydney, um, different people around. Just connections that I had. Wasn't chasing it, but they'd ring me and go, "Oh, what are you doing about this?" And I just so happens we're importing it, and and it, and it worked out that that was just me, just an email to China. Mm and Donna Ballard, the yeah. head of TUC, worked for us at that stage. She was doing the books for me out of work and I was paying her outside of the business. I actually made yeah. more money out of that business than I did out of Edstein's because <laughs> yeah. there's less moving parts. It yeah. was just buy-in, sell-out. Yeah. Yeah. No, just you knew what your margin was. You knew what everything was all the way through. And, and you
0: just charge like either a flat fee or a percentage. I was just a percentage. Like yeah. I'd
2: get the landed cost, put a percentage on it and sell it through. That'd be it nice.
0: yeah. And they'd and be happy because it's... Yeah, still. and I
2: was doing that to Ed Steen's as well. So I owned Ed Steen's, but I was actually Got selling as if as. we were buying from a wholesaler, but still thirty percent cheaper than what we could buy in the marketplace. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was like that was a really good um, scenario to start the business up and find do the research and build those relationships. And the guy that the guy that I started buying, we tried a couple of different things. He actually left the company he worked for and went out and freelanced and worked for us full-time in China. Just um, buying product and selling he, he it to was you. Do, What he would do is would interpret the CAD drawings and convert it all into Chinese and then give them to the factory and then he would do the QC inspections and organise the shipping because all of his costs were free on board. Yeah. So he would do all of that and he's still doing that today. Yeah.
1: And QC on site before it leaves deck. Gold. Oh, on your cash. Absolutely yeah, gold. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that level of control that is scary about importing. Yep. Is that you don't get the opportunity to do that. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other company's done the QC. Yep. And a Chinese company. What do you yep. do once it lands in Sydney? And there's very different, you know,
2: China's an interesting place. Like there's very different levels of Chinese people. Like China is a... a a communist country but capitalism is alive and well like capitalism mm. the the middle class in China have gone from you know being factory workers or whatever to now like everyone wants a university Cash. degree yeah. they want to work in a in an office for a multinational company and you know all these manufacturing companies were getting workers from the country to come and work in wherever their factory was mm. and each Christmas, those workers would go right. I want to negotiate a new contract now. Every year that goes on, that's getting harder. And China is no longer the the powerhouse in a lot of industries that they were, yeah. Because they've costed themselves out of the out of the market. Yeah, a lot of stuff's gone to Vietnam and India. Like India's huge in the stone industry.
1: My and absolute exposure to importing right is um, uh, what's his name, the Nike dude. His book. Yep. Uh, so yeah. I've read, I've read that a few times, and yep. that's my absolute exposure to it. So I know, I think the same thing happened to them, right? They looked Japan, and then they might have went to Vietnam, but they didn't have capacity, and then they went to China. Yep. And then I assume that they're looking to outsource to another sort of manufacturing company, uh, country now. Yep. Because eventually, as all as the tide rises, all ships rise, and and the the cost of production naturally increases. Yeah, so that benefit to all almost hurts. Yep. All yeah, definitely. Yep. So and so that happened to you guys in in importing your product.
2: Yeah. Look, the the costs haven't been too bad. Like even today, it's now at a point where at this stage, after twenty years of doing it, where India is now a viable option to really look at it. And I think you know, with some of the anxiety between. Australian China relations mm. and some of the appetite for people with China that's probably changing. Mm-hmm. Um so I think there's a couple of things at play whether it's moral or financial or whatever and I think you know if you look at what's happened to the Australian wine industry that has pulled the pin on yeah. that, the yeah. barley industry that's pulled the pin on that, you know they could put huge export tariffs and all sorts of things. So I think it's about not having all your eggs in one basket yeah. when it comes to that scenario running for
1: um, one nation
2: three <laughs> percent <laughs> interest yeah. rates I don't know how he's gonna yeah, do yeah. that. I'm sure if we said to Clive you can't charge any more for copper or any of the minerals that you're selling out of the, the And you also you also have to pay all those royalties. Yeah. 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 no 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 move on from that. <laughs> yeah. Shut
1: your nickel plant down move, yeah. On, move yeah. on. Yeah and don't pay anyone let the government yeah, pick up the tab. Right. Yeah yeah It's yeah. Yeah. Yeah, an interesting anyway, scenario. Um, Yeah, so marching on, like we,
2: um, Newcastle became an amazing market, lots of great relationships. We more or less stopped working in Sydney altogether, Mm. just pulled out of that market. Yeah.
0: So, was your relationship with that wholesale, as in you were selling to the joineries and things like that? Both both
2: business to business and and direct retail. So, we actually set up showrooms in um, Sandgate. And we were actually retailing, getting designers and different people to come in, and
1: and retail is monumental stuff—headstones and stuff. Yeah, but also mum and bench dad kitchens. Yeah, right. so
2: Head a top, lot so. of people, you know, it's probably twenty percent of the business that is someone goes and buys a caboodle kitchen from Bunnings, or buys a IKEA kitchen, or yeah. decides that they bought a house and they don't like the laminate bench tops and wants a new stone yeah. bench top. They would just come in and do that replacement. Yeah, cool. And that's that's sort of twenty percent of that that part of the business. So oh, nice. a very important and much higher margin than, yes. you know, the business-to-business business stuff where you're getting that repeat. Um, but, you know, the McDonald Jones, for instance, is Edstein's biggest customer, uh, a huge multi like Australia-wide manufacturing housing industry-based business and, um, you know, they've had to grow and adapt and, and get everything to work for that.
1: And is there pressure? Mac Jones just recently sold at least a big equity stake overseas is there pressure now for manufacturing in japan or is do they no. just say look this is cost base yeah We're, we are in the business and making money i think I so say it's like kensai as as
2: that can. that have come in have got pretty simple philosophy to keep doing what they're doing here yeah. and not you know if you look at the ab Jennings story when they actually sold out to japan it was a disaster it didn't work mm. and um i think you know a lot of people have learned from some of those pitfalls that happened in that the construction industry is a hard game. Yeah, Um, especially at the moment. Yeah, and I think the challenge that they're all facing is the fixed price Mm -hmm. scenario that they're in and the expanding costs of construction. Um, McDonnell Jones are very firm on their suppliers about negotiating contracts and getting people locked in. Um, But they're also honest and, you know, they're loyal in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's, that's an interesting journey that Ed Steen's got to continue to to work their way through and work out what they're going to do moving forward on that side. You reckon the 8X
1: increase in shipping alone might (laughs) hurt?
2: Yeah, yeah. But the good thing, like, I guess when you look at a bench top, you know, they buy... A normal kitchen's got, like, five square metres of stone in it. The stone's, like, 30% of the cost of the item. So even if that goes up 50%, that's really only going to go up 20% 20 percent mm. because like that the portion of it is lower so, so and that yeah. hasn't been the case so yeah, yeah. Th- there is price pressure in there especially the shipping and that sort of stuff and commodities like oil and those sort of things are affecting the resins and stuff that they're using to manufacture stone
1: mm. and so you guys with those offcuts, right I th- uh, correct me if i'm wrong i believe you're incredibly efficient as far as recycling that you Toss a lot in the bin, Yep. goes somewhere, gets crushed so, up, put back into yep. slaves. So
2: Pacific Blue Metal actually, um, Charlie out at the, the quarry actually takes all of the, the raw product, the waste product, and actually converts it. So one of the, the really good things that that Ed Edstein journey went through was sustainability advantage with the New South Wales government. So that was a program that they put out to encourage businesses to become more sustainable. Mid Coast Council was Greater Atari City Council. Tanya Cross was involved in initially bringing that to town, and we sort of had got wind of it um, and wanted to be a, p- a participant in it. Um, and they brought specialists in to actually help you do things, and so water recycling was one of the big things back in probably 2008 2009 or something the drought before the last one yeah <laughs> but ed Steins was using like 25 million liters of water yeah. a year and the abattoirs is only the next biggest like they were the bigger user yeah. they were about i think 150 megalitres a year yeah. um so between two or two businesses in the local area there was a huge water. strain on the water supply um, and apart from that, Mid Coast Water was sitting outside of um, Greater Tari City Council as a third party. Okay. So as a result, it wasn't part of IPART, you know, and, and putting down the regulation on how much the rate rises could be. So water rates were going up 15% per annum because yeah. it was uncapped. <laughs> so like we were looking at it and you talk about, you know, how do you come up with a business case We looked at water recycling, so at that particular time it was about 60 grand a year was being spent on water. Um, The federal government had a retooling for climate change grant um, going out there, so businesses that want to become more efficient could actually go and apply for a grant if they had a business case. We'd already done the research on an Italian water recycling plant, rainwater harvesting, all of those sort of things, put it together and I think we got... $60,000 Sixty or seventy thousand dollars for a hundred and eighty thousand dollar project. Yeah. Um, so I think we got thirty percent towards yeah. that. And within six months of um, putting all the system in and fine tuning it, we'd reduced our water usage by ninety six percent. So, wow. like which
1: is a cost base of
2: um, well, we probably saved you know upwards of fifty thousand dollars a year. Gee. We'd we'd invested. <laughs> But the two retu- years later, you were the return, cash on, positive the return yeah, yeah. on investment was crazy. Beauty. So that you know that was really good, um, and then we did solar. So it's got a hundred kilowatt solar system. We did. Power- I
1: remember reading that in the paper. So I don't know if it was a long time ago or if I was reading the paper as well weird person Fun. in twenty sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> Might have been in Jack and Co. or something. It would have been twenty sixteen. Share Facebook Mate, or Facebook articles. It, it, cool. it, it <laughs> must have been in a coffee shop and I yeah. was reading it. Yeah. Mackie's did the whole thing.
2: We yeah. liked you I know, liked wherever that. we could use local local, local people. Um, and you know that only supplements the power usage by thirty percent. And the hundred kilowatt was the limit because if you go over hundred kilowatts you're a power producer and yeah, you've got then to get got a special to, yeah, and, and it's and too yeah, hard. Sure. So oh, blah, blah. So anyway, but that's still, you know, 30%. At the peak of the day, I think it's about 45% of the production is supported by solar, um, but it's morning and afternoon where yeah, it's 20% yeah. or less. Yeah. Um, and then there was all sorts of things like, yeah, dealing with Pacific Blue Metal for recycling, the offcuts. They crushed them, put them into concrete aggregate, exposed aggregate driveways, uh, polished concrete, mm. all yeah, those yeah, sort of nice. things. So we were paying money to tip the stuff where they were taking it for free. Yeah. So yeah. it just was a no-brainer. And, and did you
1: ever look into the opportunity how do we leverage this to sell it to someone? Or?
2: We, like lots of things the in business... with
1: Charlie was just too good.
2: No, oh, I just think it was easy. You yeah. know, like mm. Ed Steens is a business, and most businesses the same, you need to stick to your knitting. You need yeah. to do what you're good at mm. and try and get that
1: right. And yeah, Disposing it for free is good enough. Yeah, yeah. and... It's, better than a loss. Yeah and, yeah, and
2: it's good for the environment because it's the life cycle's not gone. It's not going into That's landfill. Right. Yeah, it yeah. actually is going back in to replace something. Lots and lots of product, just that,
1: filling landfill where it doesn't yeah. need
2: to. So no. all plastics recycled, all cardboard recycled. But then out, out of doing Sustainability Advantage, the next program that came along through Department of Environment and Heritage, which is the department that ran all of that, was Green to Lean. So Ed with with the pilot company in New South Wales to do lean manufacturing out of the back end of sustainability. And so they facilitated over about six months a full um, lean manufacturing education program for the core employees and broke it down into teams and did value stream mapping. And, and out of that, there was about a 20% gain in production efficiency and bottom line in everything that we did which also coincided with you know buying new machines you talked about earlier what we're going to do well let's look at a machine that is energy efficient increases our productivity um needs less people to do the same activity, is safer can so lift and move one sheet of concrete with one person driving a remote not three and yeah. you know all of those sort of things um so all of those decisions were part of that process going through there and this was late? That that would have been 2010 probably. Yeah. So missed a probably pretty important bit in there. So 2006, um, I was going through a pretty tough period. I got divorced um, and leading into that an opportunity came to sell Edsteins. Yeah. So a business that we were working with in Newcastle um, put an offer on the table and um, with what was going on in my personal life, it probably all worked Made out sense, yeah. to yeah. do it. With so scrutiny. I stepped out. They I worked for them as a contractor um, once they took over. But probably six months in, there was a lot of alarm bells going off in, in that whole relationship because their finance structure um, wasn't such that it supported the business how it needed. There was some dodgy things going on with inter-business transactions and... All sorts of stuff happened that it wasn't a good period over about 18 months. and
0: So it did actually sell at that point.
2: So man. I sold in 2006 to, yep. to this, this group company. from Newcastle yep. and um, vendor financed a portion of it, which was a huge mistake. Yep. Yeah. Um, but again, if you look at how I got into the Edstein scenario, I walked away at that stage. I still owned the building in Newcastle. Um, I was debt-free at, I don't know how old I would have been then, what? 85. <laughs> <laughs> I felt it. <laughs> Probably early 40s, debt-free, own my house, yeah. um, all those sort of things. Was that the house you're in now? No. Right. I donated that house in my divorce. Ah, yes. <laughs> That's okay. um, And, yeah, so I came away with a chunk of money, owned a fair bit of stuff and was in a pretty good position. So the portion that eventually ended up losing out of the vendor finance scenario um, was never real money, it was yeah. never money that it was realised. It, it yeah. was goodwill effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, after about 18 months, there was a massive flood in Newcastle, and one of the businesses got damaged really bad and never recovered, and that caused the whole thing to collapse. Well, so, I ended up, I had a mortgage debenture over the business and went and saw Ray and Maury and the team and said, We need to do something about this. So, out, yeah. I invoked the mortgage debenture, but unfortunately, I was behind the two banks. Yeah. That were in front of it. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, they put an uh, administrator in and the administrator made a shit ton of money out of the business in the six months that he ran it because yeah. they earned everything with no debt. Yes. And, <laughs> and then um, a client who um, had we'd built a really good relationship over from Newcastle approached me on a Sunday, rang me at home on the Sunday night and said, I can see that the, the Edstein's is up for sale. There's, they're looking to enter into a, um, a deed to sell the business through the administrator. What do you think? And I said, look, there's nothing wrong with the business. The reason why it's collapsed is because of the structure and things that are there. Um, and so Paul and Jennifer Grey bought the business in um, March 2008 and um, took over the business and started from that point and so i then started working for them they asked me to stay on and at that stage i was comfortable to to do everything Mm. and they it was a very different period of time to actually go through you know they have a very conservative approach they're cashed up having gone through a period where there was no cash Mm. and everything was seated the pants (laughs) and it was out of control and i was going to
1: say march 2008 is such a Interesting time, time to yeah. to spend a lot of cash on a business.
2: Yeah, they did, and and I think they were looking at it, going, "Well, it complements their business. Yep. They can guarantee supply. It's complementary in the same industry. There's opportunity. There's all sorts of things." So, yeah.
1: and there's there's a lot done there to transform that business from what you guys walked into in mid '90s or whatever yeah. it was, yep.
2: early '90s. Yeah, yeah, that was. Yeah, it was a horrible place to go to work. Yeah, it, it was horrible. The amenities were horrible. The business was horrible. The people structure was horrible. Like it just was not enjoyable at all. And so anyway, Paul and Jennifer invested. I don't know that to date they probably are up about ten million that they've tipped into the business. Um, uh, 2016 there was a massive production line expansion and. Change in the business, and you know they've been very good to the business. As in, they've continued to invest and
1: just yeah. quickly. By invested, you don't mean as in losing hand, uh, losing cash hand over fist. You talking no, no, about no,
2: they're actually tipping money in to buy stuff and committing to building machines and
1: so as in bottom lines at zero. No, bottom line,
2: bottom line. They, they had a very simple philosophy. The business made hundred bucks. Thirty three percent was for the tax man. Thirty three percent was for them, and thirty three percent was cool. for the business. Yeah, yeah. So, that so that money just yeah, kept yeah. getting okay. turned in. Cool.
1: That's what I mean. Like they're not they're not making three million and pushing ten mil back in. No, nah, yeah. no, nah, cool.
2: nah. it, it yeah, funded it itself speech. plus the bank yeah. and you know whatever else. But yeah. it was, um, yeah, it's been and it, the business continued to grow and expand. And like two thousand sixteen was a golden period. Like it, mm. the business was very successful, had a great team, and. You know, lots of good things were going on at that period.
0: So yeah. talk to us about some of the people management things that come up. You know, obviously you've expanded from, a, I think, a 10-man team or whatever at the beginning to a 33 to, you know, what was it at, at the peak? What's the...
2: Well, now it's 90. So, yeah, 90 people. 90 people, people yeah.
1: three sides. Another point there is you said it was horrible to work out, which yep. horrible at 10, means disgusting at 100, surely. Yep. So,
0: yeah, yeah. What, what did you implement along the way to, to help with that?
2: System and process, like, you know, people uh, people react well to knowing what's expected of them. What they have to do and yep. and what
1: the person next to them should do so yep. they know if they can pull and, their head in. And
2: if they've done a good job. Yeah. So they mm. can look at it and go, you know what, today I had to do A, B, C and I did A, B, C and D. And yeah. so
1: by uh, if they know they've done a good job, you're not talking about bonus cash in your pocket after that are you saying just that they know that they've done a good job it's a barbecue at the end of the month yeah. that's met you know expectation you know and yeah. that became harder
2: the bigger the business became. yes um but you know at 30 to 60 you know like in the early days when i owned it we went to phillip island to watch troy bayless ride like took 35 guys down <laughs> and we went and camped yeah. at cows and got smashed at the races and yeah. You know, partied hard and had People a great time.
1: And run around with their shirts off. Yeah, and we had a ball. It'd be like, harder to do it a hundred. Yeah,
2: and <laughs> yeah. and unfortunately, I think, you know, that small business thing—you can do that sort of stuff. Mm. The bigger you become, the more different personalities you get. The harder it becomes that things become hey, an job. expectation. <laughs> Yeah. yeah and yeah, HR right. doesn't yeah. stand for hu- doesn't stand for human resources hazard reduction. Yes, yeah, <laughs> correct. <laughs> so, yeah, like yeah. more the more people you get, the just the harder that all becomes, yeah. but you know, up to 2016, great team of people, awesome business, growing, everything on track, everything going in the right direction, love going to work every day cash in the bank, all, everything sort of ticking over and going really good. Um, and, you know, like in the background behind that, the, the memorial gardens is still going along. Ross decided at, I don't know, maybe 2008 that he sold out. Yep. So I actually stepped into the managing director role at the crematorium as well.
0: and he At went, the same time as. Yep,
2: yeah, so he went away and did some property stuff. Call Jack um, Dorsey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, had a few hats on. Two monsters. <laughs> and um, so Brownie, Graham Brown and Peter Fellbush, um, Rod Illidge, myself, I think that was it. We were the board of directors for the crematorium and it it was a great business. It still is an amazing yeah. business. It um, serves the community really well and is a profitable place and – is the ability to have a small team around you and put focus and, and make sure that results for the community and for the business are aligned. Mm. Um, but in 2018, and we'd had a couple of approaches along the way from a public company called Propel Funeral Partners um, that they wanted to buy the business and they'd bought WT Howard in Taree um, and they are the second biggest public company in the funeral industry in Australia and had made approaches and the shareholders looked at the memorial gardens as like a term deposit in the bank. They put money yeah. in and every quarter money came out. They got a bit out. Yeah. And they were, anyone that got in early was getting fifteen percent return on their investment. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> franked. Yeah and, and so <laughs> they were happy. They were very, very happy. <laughs> and um, that all just kept going and we're like, why do we want to sell? Like this is a forever business. But The risk always was if someone came into the market with another cremator or crematorium. And in probably, I don't know, 2015 or 16, Alan Pearce retired at Foster and sold out to Chris Edwards and they actually continued to run as Alan Pearce Funerals and then at some stage they made the decision that they would put in their own cremator. So they put a cremator in in Rodmay Street in Tunkurray that immediately took 210 cremations a year from the memorial gardens away. We were yeah. doing about 700. So yeah. Yeah, a fairly substantial yeah. chunk of the business yeah. went away. At that time, Propel approached us again <laughs> and said, you're still not thinking about selling? And we said, no, maybe we are. What's yeah.
1: on offer? Changed their mind.
2: So um, I brokered a deal with Propel and, all of the shareholders i think at that stage there was 44 shares not 22 and um put an offer to them and said these are the options we can take alan pierce on and go and spend five or six million and build our own thing out there and become a funeral director which we don't want to do or we can cash out and go this has been a hell of a ride yeah. and when we put it on the table they're all retirees with lots of money and go yeah. Yeah, i don't want to put more yeah. money in I more don't, effort <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to do any of that yeah. so we took the offer and and again i continue to work for propel today as a contractor mm. and propels ability like they now have 145 funeral homes and crematorium cemeteries around australia and new zealand and to combat what's going on in foster they went and bought the mid coast Ford site out there and they're tipping in a substantial investment to build tea rooms, chapel, funeral home, everything on site out there to actually claw back what we lost. <laughs> yes. And that's the difference. Yeah. You know, a public company with big cash yeah. reserves just look at the numbers, yeah. and just go, this is how we fix that issue. Yep.
0: Throw so more cash.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah invest. Because their whole growth, you know, the whole way public companies work is to get growth. You know, people continue to invest. Yeah, that's right. Because yep. sales growth's there. Well, the best way to get sales growth is acquisition
1: or yep. development. So, Funny thing. Shares, yeah, they can afford a bits for the same business. Yep. And for no, rhyme or, reasons, yeah. no <laughs> rhyme or reason. No rhyme or reason. Exactly. Warren Buffett <laughs> yeah. says,
2: you know, you invest in a company and you don't ever look at it again. If, you, if you're invested in the company... No, assume and it's going to be good for 20 years, otherwise you shouldn't have bought it. Exactly. You're a trader yeah. if that's what you're doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you're buying it today, which... I'm an investor,
1: but I trade. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's really hard today. Yeah, yeah. like to when you get a self wealth app or something to <laughs> not to not scale. Yeah, like, oh, oh log on. I'm I finished my Instagram feed. How? What should I? Oh, check my app. I will check my see how much. Oh, shouldn't have checked that. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm not going to sleep. I have self
2: managed super and and probably about. I've always had aspirations. I want to be a share. I wanted to get into share trading and investing and. Never had the balls to do it. So I started YouTubing and doing all these things and after the, the G S C and different things happened I went, Right, I'm gonna yeah, I'm just gonna, put, gonna do it. I'm just gonna put twenty grand in, I'm gonna do it. No. Wow this is awesome Put in 50 grand Put in 100 grand And then all of a sudden I've got all this money in there And yeah. Like this is so easy Why yeah. doesn't everyone <laughs> Why doesn't everyone do this <laughs> And like I'd pick some Absolute bangers Like I'd be on to Kyle mm. Like I'd send Kyle screenshots Okay, go Man are you on Kogan mm. Yeah Like Kogan I bought in <laughs> a <laughs> Careful <laughs> I bought yeah. in on I bought in on Port Kogan Watch you don't hurt my feelings <laughs> But
1: I think I dropped another 8% last night I'd <laughs> I literally been, checked it this morning. I've just like,
2: been buying more because oh, it is it is a good business.
1: Yeah, well, that's what I thought too. And I started buying in on the way down and yeah. I'm still a thing about 60% of yeah. my money. Nah. So
2: so I, I bought Kogan at about $4.80 and sold at $21. Yeah, I think and I bought it at 14 yeah. And
1: I, fist-pumped at 21 and then watched it the fall back to four. So.
2: Yeah, I've had that with others. I've got A2 Milk that I'm down 60% yeah. and Points Bet that I'm mm. down 50%. But, I've, you know, you've just got to have the diversity yeah. to be able
1: to do it. So. Anyway, <laughs> um, stock back on track it? before it hurts me. You, you've talked a lot about business case and building business plans and stuff about expansion and, and um, driving even existing business into a different direction. You went straight from school to work. Where did, where in that mix did you learn that and how did Mm. that come about? What do you mean? Well, did the business acumen side, yeah? Did someone teach that or did you just so my parents? My parents were just
2: average punners. My dad was a Arnott's rep for 25 years, he just went to work and did his thing. Didn't really, he was just taking orders and doing selling like he wasn't a businessman Hmm. my mum worked hard you know she was a cleaner and did different things and worked at the railway bowling club and we never had anything as a kid like as kids my brother and sister like we had a good life and we had holidays and all of those sort of things but we were never wealthy yeah but i don't know i would always had this thing when i started my apprenticeship i love cash Hmm. i love money and Hmm. All of a sudden I had these skills that I could leverage. So I'd go to the sailing club down here where I would sail every weekend and they'd someone go, Oh, my boat's broke and I go, Oh, I can fix that. It's two hundred bucks cash and I'll do that through the week. And so all of a sudden I started getting this I understood the cash economy. Mm. And um yeah, I don't know. It just
1: it he paid full tax. Uh, by yeah, yeah, not probably not back then. So now, I'll never do anything dodgy yeah, like I'm that. I'm sure you would have paid full tax.
0: Is there anything formal training-wise that you got along the way as as part of your roles there? Did they put you through? Um, so
2: with at Steve, I did a few different things, like train the trainer. Yeah. Um, most of the stuff there, but like especially doing contract management, um, the quality assurance thing. I did a lot of stuff through nine double o two certification. So not really like by doing it i learned about quality assurance um but not really too many formal things there like no post studies yeah. um but when we got to edstein's there was lots of things that we did like working with department of environment and heritage like i ran those projects um did frontline management with tafe like cert four got guys involved in that um but The real nitty-gritty of learning a profit and loss was making mistakes. Yeah. Like Ross and I digging in and going, what do we stuff up this time? How do we fix that? What's the, you know, how does that work? And, you know, there's nothing, you don't learn, you can go to uni, you can do all of those different things, but nothing teaches you like your pocket. Yeah. Yeah. You know, experience. when you make a mistake with a person uh-huh. and it costs you money or a client or whatever, you remember that. You yeah. never make that or you try not to make that <laughs> yeah. mistake again.
0: I like that correction.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't say never. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so I've done different things like with Australian Business Chamber, um, different courses with them along the way. Um, but most of my stuff is is experience, like go to Europe, What's the best company doing in Europe? How do they do it? Why are they doing it that way? What how do you
1: learn? Like, how do you get in the middle of that? Like, you how can see them. How do you get the opportunity them, to ask them? You can see them mm. from the outside for sure. but how Suppliers.
2: Do you, yeah, Suppliers. Leveraging relationships. So, one of the things, like, the stone industry is a massive industry around the world, but it's quite a small industry. Yeah. So, you know... All my working relationship, like I talked about when we started buying from China, they were just people I knew and they said, oh, what are you doing? I said, here you go, I'll sell it to you. The same thing happened when we started buying machines and the opposite happened to us. Like we had the first CNC saw in Australia. We had the first yeah. CNC router in Australia. So what was happening, the companies that sold us that would say, got Bill in Melbourne, can he come to Tari and have a look at your setup?" Yeah, shit, I don't care. He's not a competitor. Bring him up, and then that so forged much this it
1: cost me to ship to Melbourne. Yeah,
2: <laughs> it would. That relationship started with Bill or Joe or whoever mm. it was, and then expanded. That mm. that network of people, you know, was customers, was suppliers, was industry people. To to give you an idea, like Tebow, which is a company in France that su- has supplied all the big CNC router machines, like the big robot ones that can pick and do all <laughs> of that sort of stuff. They actually got me to do – they came to us and said, right, what we need from you is we need your production information so that we can build the case for the next machine. We want to do this, this and this. And I said, well, I've got all the numbers. They said, we don't have anyone else in the world that has the numbers on the production times and how you did this and all of mm-hmm. those sort of things. So that led us into – Tebow took us to Airbus. We went to Airbus in um, – city toulouse Mm. went to the a380 production line (laughs) they had a water jet from tebow so we got to go to the production line for airbus and have a look at the whole scenario
0: in france
2: in france in toulouse in france and like amazing and like everywhere that's happened is about a relationship with someone
0: so would you say it's partially about yeah like relationships and and moving early on stuff and and yeah obviously supplying feedback. And,
2: and I think the earlier you're in, the more risk-averse you are, like, like the less risk-averse you are, yeah. like you are happy yeah. to have a crack and, you know, me now at 53, like I've lost a bit of that. Like I don't – I'm now looking at it going, how do I get a passive income? I'm going to get out of here anyway. It doesn't <laughs> matter, yeah. I, I, I just want to go travelling in my caravan. I want income to support our
1: lifestyle. And We were talking about it not that long ago um I think, it might have been meant earlier this week, about um, in um, quotations, uh, competitors, because right, you you compete in the industry and it potentially costs you money if you help someone, but the benefit from helping people, uh, knowing full well that you do an incredible job and you take care of your customers incredibly well and you take care of your staff incredibly well as, as well as you can. There's that, I suppose, level of freedom that it grants you so that you can say, Look, I can help this person. It's mm. not going to hurt me. Mm. If they can do it as well as me or better than me, then I'll ask them for that advice back. The huge thing that it does is it lifts the whole
2: industry. Yeah. So as soon as you lift the industry, the competition of the bloke doing something for a dollar when you want to do it for $2.50 mm. and Just you can business. see what the value is and people see what the value is that changes the whole market. Mm. So being insulated and not sharing any of that information is counterproductive to what you're trying to do. If you want to be the low production, high value supplier and everyone else's low value high production, yeah. How do you, you know,
1: like you without without making like a, a stupid cliché, the rising tide lifts all boats. <laughs> yeah. So like
2: <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> but, you know, like I there's There's limits to that. Yeah. You know, like we wouldn't do that for someone in Newcastle or Port Macquarie or whatever, but someone in Brisbane, someone in South Australia, Western Australia, whatever. And, you know, in that period from 2000 to 2016, there you would be staggered at how many people from around Australia have been to Taree to look at that little building out there and understand Mm. what's going on and why did you buy that machine and why did you get it built like that? Because, like... One of the suppliers, we have a machine or there was a machine out there that puts the edge on bench tops, big straight line machine. I'd looked at it and gone, well, how do we combine all these different things and went to the manufacturer and sat down with the manufacturer in Italy and said, can we do this, this, this and this? And they said, well, we've never done that. Why do you want to do that? And so, well, this will change this process. And in Australia, we do lots of things where we glue things together. We want to machine the front of it. And like, right, well, that's feasible. Leave it with us took nine months to build. They built it and then CDK, the company that was selling the machine, were going, right, we're under something here. Mm. So that became the Edstein model for Australia and they sold 30 or 40 of those machines in Australia based on the design that we came up with.
1: That's probably the design that put my dining table together. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) I (laughs) thought it was a really good idea to buy like a 100-kilo dining table six months before I moved (laughs) for whatever reason. Yeah.
0: And, and then you become that guy, right, that, that has, has helped mm. out the supplier and yep. and then, you know, again, they're calling you up when they've got a new idea. Yeah. So yep. you're, you're always one of the first to market.
2: Yeah, and, you know, that builds the opportunities for, you know, sharing of new technology and new information. And, you know, the big thing now is ceramic. Like ceramic Spain. products are, the, are the, the in thing. And we saw that, you know, we went, we went to a plant in Spain – where the owner knew who we were just from the reputation and he took us into the R&D <laughs> booth that no one goes to <laughs> and said, this is what's coming. And we're like, holy shit. The company based in Tari. Yeah. yeah.
0: Pretty crazy. And like yeah.
2: France, Thibaut in France asking us for a technical input yeah. into if we're going to do this, how will that work? What's the production time? How are those things going to happen? And so that, you know, that's, they're huge things. Yeah, um, definitely. But yeah, like that journey's over for me now, and I'm moving on to the the next part of my life. I was life. gonna
1: say, fast forward to that this year. There's been a, a fair shake up in this story. Yep. Two months ago?
2: Um, no, not even so. Oh, yeah. Six weeks. The eighth of eighth of April.
1: Yeah. yeah, bit of a shake up. Yeah. So it's so just
2: it's a, a changing of the guard. You know, my passion for the business had had waned. Pretty you know, like the yep. last. Anyone that's been in business through COVID. It's oh, um, hard three years. The industry's got a lot of issues with silicosis. Um, there's all sorts of things going on, you know, with regulations and stuff. 26 years I've been there. Yeah. That's it's a long time in one thing. Like I've had lots of other stuff going on, yeah. but it's a long that's time a really being cool in. cool experiences. In exactly. one, yeah. Like I've traveled the world. Like the opportunities that that business provided me, you know, like every year to Europe. Mm hmm. Every year, like terrible, yeah. yeah. And I can't
1: believe I've got to go to Greece again. <laughs> <laughs> like, I've got to mean, go to Italy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, tough skinny. So,
2: all of the you know amazing things, amazing relationships. And when you know, when the journey did come to an end, so Paul and Jennifer's sons are wanting to take over the business, they want to take it in a direction that works with how they see the business going. My you know, passion had waned, those two things came together, and we just said, you know what. Sweet, let's it. do this yeah. and you can go do what you want and they can take it how they want to do it and you know I I don't have to agree with what they're doing they don't have to agree with how I did it it's, yeah. it's just time to move on and so it's an interesting time in my life I want to travel and do lots of stuff and but these opportunities keep dropping in my lap
0: so <laughs> 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 interesting <laughs> yeah it's really? funny the jobs that pop up when you're when mm. you're actually looking like you know there's a yeah obviously there's a there's an opportunity when you're looking for it they just seem to seem to pop up and, mm.
1: and i think a really cool point to take out of it and we were talking about it before we hit recorder unfortunately <laughs> was you building a resume yep. which you've, you've never done you said so and really looking back at your achievements and your abilities yep for a, a kid that left school and started an apprenticeship yeah putting cabinets together for steve
2: I think one of the interesting things, like psychologically, I've struggled probably for the last two years, I reckon, mm. um, and that's that's been hard for me because I've always been strong and known what I wanted to do. And mental health is, you know, just one of those things that happens to well, other you people. Don't do. yeah. yeah, it yeah. doesn't happen to you, and and unfortunately, like my wife Therese has been through the ups and downs of the last couple of years, and. And it got to a point where we had a business coach at Edstein's, and he was trying to talk to me and I didn't want to listen to him because you know, he was be employed by the owners, yeah. didn't work yeah. for me. And I reached out to Megan at the Resolution Network because I've had a lot to do with her and said, you know, I, I'm, this is what I'm feeling, these are the issues that I've got, how do I go about this? And she put me in connection with Bianca there. And, and part of that was you know, trying to understand where I was and what happened. And I'd already engaged with that before I decided to part. Ways with Ed Steens. and then when that happened, and we started unboxing some of the things and the reasons why I was feeling what it was, and that whole journey through that, a lot of stuff came up. But one of the interesting things in the the session that I had with it this week was I'd seen it three weeks ago, and then came back again now and said, "Wow, so much has happened in three weeks!" Like I've done a mind map of what I want my life to look like, and I've got all these boxes about I want to work with people whose values align with my values and I want to have relationship-based um, transactions with people. I don't want to have it as, you know, it's just a transaction. I want to feel something. I want to be able to contribute because that's the things that all yeah, the things subscribed
1: I've t- to Simon Sinek, have you? No. <laughs> yeah. I actually don't <laughs> like him. I,
2: I find it really hard to connect to him. Like yeah. I've been lis- I've been reading – Some of his videos
1: are really cool. He, he is good <laughs> but I think he talks in – riddles yeah, yeah, a yeah. bit around and the emotions like yeah. and a lot like someone who hasn't had too much business
2: experience. Yeah. I'm reading a book by Mark Boris called Rise, which is really interesting talking about divergent and convergent thinking. Mm. And that's, you know, I think in the space that I'm in at the moment has been really good. And so one of the other things was I saw a job come up. I've never applied for a job in my life. Every mm. everything that's ever happened has just happened. happened. And so... Did you actually
0: have to type up a resume? Yeah, I didn't have anything. Like I did
2: not have... (laughs) Left school. Surely you could have outsourced that. (laughs) But I think in in the headspace that I was in, it was a really important part of the healing of me Mm. understanding and looking back and going... that
1: it's not all for nothing. Yeah, 35
2: years of working. These are all the things that I've actually done. And like, wow, that's Mm. pretty cool. And then I wrote a letter to one of the jobs that I applied for and... My stepdaughter read it and said, "You've undersold yourself." And I went, "What do you mean?" She said, "Not you don't feel like you could do this." It's like I've listened to all your stories. Yeah, (laughs) like I am the man for this job, and and so on. So yeah, that's I don't even care whether I get the job, but I think that whole journey of doing a resume and putting all those things in place has been really important about allowing me to step into the next stage and then you know people keep talking to me go oh can you come and do this or could you do that and it's like yeah "Yeah, right okay (laughs) i don't think i would have to worry about finding things to do yeah it's funny when you're
0: available the jobs you get (laughs) opportunities yeah
2: Yeah. and i'm project managing the job for propel at foster so that's up until march next year and i'm still running the memorial gardens today and there's plenty of things to Got to keep you busy. Yeah. every January
0: shop has contacted yeah. you for
1: a just. Uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, I've just I've made one conscious decision. I don't want anything to do with the stone industry. I'm yeah. basically, of that chapter's closed in my life. Yeah. Um, I heard a rumor this week that I was going into opposition against Ed and i Got a <laughs> laugh out of Can't that. Can't wait but to see it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's Imagine that,
1: at, what, mid to late 50s? Yeah. Just burning lots of cash to set up. <laughs> nope, anyway. not doing that. So. Um, time consciously, if you don't mind, just so based on that stuff that you are talking about, mental health sort of thing, obviously it is something that is becoming a lot more evident in men, uh, younger, older, it doesn't matter. How was that step into... Asking someone and saying, look, this is how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> because it's how it's I feel is something that your wife asks you and you say, fine. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it's been it's been very interesting. So I'm remarried. I got remarried 10 years ago. I've got an amazing wife who's got her own business. Um, I have two children of my own. One lives in America, one lives in Tyree. And I have two adopted children, effectively, mm. who I'm very, very close to. Um, and Jake... Um, Is You uh, do also nah, <laughs> No me No <Nah>, Jake's <laughs> I live around the corner <laughs> But not <laughs> quite a bit <laughs> yeah. Jake's a very interesting character Who's been through A really interesting journey He's a He started Cutting our dog's hair In the backyard At Old Bar And then turned that Into an apprenticeship As a As a hairdresser And then went to Sydney And became a barber To the stars And Part has done, Part Yeah Has yeah. done amazing Things in his life And He's been away From home For a fair period And it's fair to say and I don't think he'd mind me sharing like he'd lost his self in you know he lived in Byron for six months and lost his identity and found that he wanted to come home and it's interesting he came home for family and it was you know that was at Christmas and then we've been through this period where he's been lost and coming back into the family fold and he's you know he's into meditation and he's into all different sorts of things and he's very much open about his emotions and feelings and it's like Yeah, this is pretty cool and we've always had a good relationship, but it allowed me to have some conversations with him, which opened up, you know, me to understanding that I had some mental health issues that needed to be addressed. Yeah. And that sort of has now transposed where, you know, I was helping him initially and then he became about helping me and yeah. And I think that openness he's he's been in New Zealand. There's a guy, I just can't remember his name, but he's a barber who's done a a TED Talk. It's amazing TED Talk. I'll see if I can find the name of it that yeah. you can insert Put this it in. it in the show notes. notes. It's, it's uh, one of the most, like, you want to cry? Yeah. hearing this guy's story about barbering. Like, he came from an abusive family. He's a Maori and uh, his father bashed, his mum bashed him. Mm. Went through lots of domestic violence and started barbering a bit like Jake and started cutting hair in the shed in the backyard and then one day cut this guy's hair or this kid's hair Mm -hmm. and the kid said to him at the end of it, he said, I can't thank you enough, you know, because he talked to him about feelings and life and about what had been going on and he said, this was going to be my last haircut ever. I was going to kill myself. And so Matt Brown, I think it is, I think his name, um, amazing. His story is amazing. I actually assume we'll have show notes so we'll try and link it in. yeah. Yeah, so... And I think Jake connected to that. So he went to New Zealand and barbered in his barber shop. And they have this greeting where when they come in, you know, they touch yeah. noses mm-hmm. and they have this the- feeling. And one of the shirts that they have is, um, She's not, she not your excuse, or She's not something about like empowering women and men's mental health issues shouldn't be put on to the females of our society and that sort of stuff so jake's now got this connection coming back into town where he wants to start a business in tari and he wants to build connection to the aboriginal community because he's got a tie there and he wants to talk about men's health when he's cutting their hair because women do it like women go to the hairdresser and they unburden their life so why can't men do that and i think you know, that whole thing, the whole stigma about men have to be strong and can't be emotional and yeah. can't show vulnerability is all bullshit. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, we've got to get that out and we've got to be better at that sort of stuff. And
1: I mean, that's a, some, something we've talked about in our business a fair bit is how do we engage this? And It's a weird thing to do as an employer. So we talked about engaging a third party as to can we pay someone else to help our team, men or women, I guess. Um, can we engage that and where where does that line drawn, I suppose. But I think it's one of those things is just taking care of the people that you care about. Mm. Yep. So important. I know. I went to the gym not last night, not before. And I walked in and I ended up talking to one of the guys and he's like, Oh, I seen you over there. I was gonna come say hello. And I was like, Look, it's probably best you didn't. Yep. Um, I'm here at night because I've not had a very good day <laughs> but uh, i need to get rid of this before i go home because again it's not my wife's burden. It's, it. it's no one else's burden how do i get rid of that and um i think it's an important lesson to put in there is that everyone carries it yep deal with it yeah don't, don't let it deal with you
2: yep yeah, very important.
1: Just time consciously, yeah. Nigel. I'd love to talk to you for the next <laughs> <laughs> four or five hours. Yeah. Um. We better wrap it up. Thank you so much for your time. No drama. There's, there's one it.
0: last question, sorry, we do like to ah, ask to, <laughs> to, to all our guests is that you know, if we have you on in another five years, what do you think you'll be talking about?
2: Travelling Australia in my caravan.
0: Perfect. <laughs> 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 oh All the the great places. That's the best answer we've had.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: All the amazing places that we visited. And like, it's so amazing. Like, as part of um, the process of dealing with, you know, ending a relationship like Ed Steen's with me, has been we we went back through our Instagram and we have an Instagram for travel, Fergs Wander Oz, if anyone wants to follow us as we travel around, Um, looking at some of the things that we've done and some of the places we've been and our own personal social media. What Treason I've done in 10 years is absolutely staggering the things that we've seen and there's so much we haven't seen in Australia that we have this appetite for. Time to find it. So we now have to find a career that can fund passively while we're out and, you know, that could be getting a coxswain's ticket so I can go drive boats or Mm -hmm. going back to my marine background or business. I don't know. I don't know what the next next chapter is. But the next four months is going to be in North Queensland. I reckon with. (laughs) 5G, you'll be fine.
1: To not, <laughs> not have to drive. <laughs> no, be able to Elon sit. Musk, he's going to solve yeah, Starlink next to your uh, yeah. caravan and sort it out, mate. Yeah. Thank you for your time. No worries, really it's been a pleasure. It. Thanks Sarge. Thanks for listening. Make sure you like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Tell a friend and also let us know who you'd like to hear from on the podcast.